0: This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. Our Voices is a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together.
1: David Hirsch is a senior shareholder at Berg Simpson and well-renowned in the legal community for his litigation skills and expertise. He has also spent countless hours impressing upon the importance of attorney well-being through his work on the Colorado Task Force on Lawyer Well-being. In this podcast, he discusses his own personal struggles, reprioritizing his life, and finding a healthy balance for himself and his family. Listen in as he speaks with Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza in this episode
2: of Our Voices. We are so fortunate today to be speaking with David Hirsch. I'm Courtney Holm. I'm an attorney at Courtney and Associates where I primarily focus on mediation, family law, criminal defense, and civil litigation. And today I have my co-host...
1: Hi, my name is Nicole Sparaza. I'm a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area, and I primarily practice family law and a little bit of civil litigation.
2: David, we're so happy you were able to sit down and talk with us today. As you know, the format of the podcast is to talk about who you were, who you are, and a little bit about who you're going to be in the future. So let's start off with really delving into who you were growing up, what your family was like, and uh, what maybe led you down to the law school path.
3: Thanks, Courtney. you know, it's interesting, I grew up in a family in the Midwest that um, lived in a blue-collar area, working class. None of the people in my family went to college. Uh, I had one side of the family that was were recent immigrants, and in one side of the family that had a long history of farming in the farm communities. And so, my sister was the first one to go to college, and I had the pleasure and the delight of also going to college. And so my parents were focused on education, but it wasn't something we had a lot of experience with. And as, um, as luck would have it, I, um, I had some very good teachers. And uh, one of the things that happened to me was that I was working with my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Phelps, on a Tuesday afternoon after school, getting ready for a parent-teacher conference or something. And it's difficult now to believe, but apparently uh, I was being a little bit of a smart aleck and maybe even arguing with him, uh, although I can't imagine that. And so, uh, in exasperation, Mr. Phelps said to me, I know what you should do when you grow up. And I was like, Well, what's that? And he said, You should be a lawyer. Like, well, why? And the comedy made was because you get to argue all day and you get paid for it. Cool. And, you know, it really was at that moment that the idea of being a lawyer entered my brain. We didn't know lawyers. We didn't have lawyers. Went searching around to try to find lawyers, couldn't locate one. So that was really the stimulus. And as a coded to that, it was really fun when he retired. I got to go back and speak at his retirement and tell that story. And it just it warmed his heart, uh, even though I apparently still had been a smart aleck. I don't know.
1: I think that it's also fun that you remember that day in so much detail. That obviously had a pretty big impact on you.
3: Changed my life. Changed my life. And introduced an idea that was totally alien to my environment. I mean, my parents worked hard and they were, you know, very conscientious. But that, there weren't law shows on TV. There weren't lawyers in our social circle. And that was really it's just amazing how that random comment I'm sure said in exasperation really kind of changed the direction of my life.
2: You mentioned that some of your family were immigrants. Mm-hmm. You, where did they come from?
3: Um so yeah, I'm a <laughs> I'm, you know, a very white middle class uh, old dude. Uh, and my, my father's side of the family came from Wales, and so they had immigrated in the generation ahead of him, and uh, his uh, dear mother had, uh, at one point, four young men fighting in World War II in, in harm's way, all four of her boys, uh, but she was very proud to be able to represent uh, the new country and to make her share of the sacrifice, um, and two of those young men didn't come home. And she was very proud of the service of her boys, you know, for their new country.
2: Is Wales the one where everybody sings?
3: <laughs> Wales is the country that has all of the places I can't pronounce. But uh, yeah, we're all short and, and very unimaginative.
2: And what was the, the main industry of, you mentioned farming. What did your family farm?
3: Uh, you know, my family on my mother's side goes back many, many generations and had farmed across the south and with western expansion into Missouri and you know raised uh, cash crops and raised livestock and and dairy cattle and and those kind of things and so the last we just in fact uh, I think it was uh, eighteen months ago my one of my cousins sold the last remaining farm parcel uh, in our family, and it's the first time in history that we've not been connected to the land in that fashion.
2: So you hear Mr. Phelps say, you can get paid to argue, and that was enough for you. And what steps did you then take to follow that path?
3: Well, we tried to find lawyers for me to talk to, and I think we finally found Mr. Hannah, uh, who was, upon reflection, appears maybe was some sort of transactional lawyer. Uh, and I went and met him at his office and and uh, thought, this is really dull, um but you know i got into um forensics uh as well as sports when i got to high school and i really enjoyed uh doing speech and debate and uh, extemporaneous speaking and competed quite extensively and that was a a place where i've met some other lawyers who might come and judge or or uh, would have children who were involved from other teams And then that led me to university where I continued that practice and got to work for a lawyer. I went to a relatively small liberal arts college in South Carolina, but had a lawyer who was teaching business law. And so I started pulling weeds at his family farm and cutting the lawn and trimming the bushes. And he said, you know, you're not as dumb as you look. Maybe you can work in my office. And so I started working in his law office and and that was uh, kind of the path and and the gateway drug to getting into law school. And then the rest, as they say, is history.
2: What school was that?
3: In in South Carolina? Well, I hate to say it in public, but it was Bob Jones University. It's a small liberal arts, very strict uh, religious school um, that has a number. It's a university, has a number of majors. And I studied accounting and public speaking. But uh, a big emphasis of the school is is uh, teaching Bible students and and creating pastors and missionaries and that that kind of thing. So it's a very, it was a natural outgrowth of the very strict uh, religious upbringing that I had that was uh, kind of a trigger point for something we may talk about later in terms of my uh, dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. But uh, so, yeah.
2: Well, that's not a very common correlation. You don't see a lot of accounting majors go into law school.
3: Well, actually, I started out in the, quote, pre-law, close-quote, uh, major and realized, you know, I'm going to graduate with a degree in being able to do nothing. That doesn't seem very <laughs> realistic. So I, I transferred to the School of Business and got a degree in accounting, which has come in very handy, you know, in doing civil trial work, which is what I do. Um and then I also got to study and, and obtain a degree in public speaking. And I had some great mentors and some great teachers and people who really—and if you think about it, it you, like with many people who dedicate their lives to God or for their religion, they see it as their mission to teach. And I had some wonderful educators who took me under their wing and taught me, and, and I received a very high-quality education. I'm very grateful for that.
2: So then where did you go to law school?
3: I went to a Southern Baptist law school in North Carolina, Wake Forest University, which was literally the only law school in the country that would accept somebody coming out of Bob Jones University. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the University of Colorado said, you don't bother applying at you know, University of Wyoming. Anyway, um, and, you know, Wake was a great place to, to go to law school. And I had some great professors, and I couldn't wait to leave North Carolina and come to Colorado. Were
2: you one of those students that loved law school, or were you one of those students that couldn't wait to get out?
3: yes uh <laughs> both <laughs> well the truth of the matter is i'd worked in this uh, this solo practice law firm uh, throughout college and then into law school he was a fifth generation lawyer in this small town in north carolina and i'd seen i've been inside the courtroom i've been involved in big cases and small cases and i'd argued social security uh, disability claims and do and i had this idea about how the law worked and law school wasn't it. You had to go get your ticket, but you know, a lot of it didn't strike me as being particularly practical. So I pushed through as quickly as I could and I was happy to leave. And I was also newly married, so I spent a lot of time trying to make sure I studied and and then got home and spent time with my new wife. And so law school was a necessary evil.
1: Well, you also mentioned that you couldn't wait to get to Colorado. Did you already have Colorado on your sights when you were in law school?
3: Absolutely. I had married a young lady from Colorado, but I'd always grown up. My father had just, he'd been absolutely enraptured with the idea of living in Colorado. We just couldn't make that happen because of his uh, job situation. So it was uh, nirvana to move to Colorado. And of course, when you graduate law school, you have options. And so I could come out here. So
1: when you moved back to Colorado did that happen right after law school?
3: The day after. I moved all <laughs> of my final exams into the first week so I could leave this Saturday after finishing my last exam and never looked back.
1: How very intentional
3: of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one ever accused me of being particularly relaxed so it was we need to get out of here and get going.
1: So how did you navigate finding a job?
3: That was really fun uh, because I had <laughs> I had the promise of a job. And so we showed up here, and because I'd finished law school uh, a semester early, we, I was standing in my in-law's uh, family room uh, on the phone to my future employer to when do I come in and fill out the paperwork and uh, what's the insurance plan look like and all that. And I got stuttering and stammering on the other end of the line, and then he explained to me that I, he probably should have called me Because he had taken a government job and was closing his office on twelve thirty-one, and good luck. So I got to go back into the family room and say, "Hey, in-laws, I have great news. I can no longer support your daughter." (laughs) So that was great fun. I found a, a suite of lawyers who did mostly transactional work and some domestic work, who had civil cases and criminal cases and domestic cases. They needed some young pup to go and blather on about in court. And I said, I'm your guy. And so I got to work with them. And there's absolutely no silk stocking about my legal upbringing. I was over in the courthouse every week, sometimes daily, and while I'm there, I'm representing people I've never met before. I picked up their file just that morning. Yes, here's how we're going to enter the plea. Yes, we're going to, we'll negotiate this. Oh, by the way, do you need a lawyer? Oh, great. Here's my card. Do you have any money? Here's my card. You can come by the office. We'll, so that was my blue blood upbringing in the law.
2: So being in the court, it sounds like you were right at home. Because that was some place where it was almost like a stage for you,
3: somewhat. It was a place where I wasn't smart enough to know how poorly I was doing. <laughs> I, you know, and the reality is, uh, shortly after being admitted, I uh, we looked around the office and decided that I was the most experienced trial lawyer in the office, and I should be lead counsel on a multi-week civil trial, which I did lead on, and where I got my derriere royally, royally kicked. Uh, I think that uh, the lawyer, who's now a friend of mine, um, at the time used it. In, my tail feathers to dust the chandeliers and all the corners and crevices and I learned more in that couple of weeks getting my, my head beaten in than I learned all of law school and probably ever since so I was not particularly skillful but I was very enthusiastic
2: that's what makes good lawyers though right the ones that actually make a few mistakes or learn a few things along the way they're going to get a better result from because they're going to work harder
3: if you survive if you
2: survive <laughs> So now you're doing only civil litigation. How did you get down to the the firm that you're at now?
3: So I'm very fortunate. I get to do complex civil trial work. Um, and I joined uh, another firm downtown that did nothing but insurance defense work in the uh, mid-80s and had some great mentoring and some great opportunity to work on some very fascinating cases and had some outstanding lawyers who took me under their wing and kind of encouraged me and, and and mentored me and then in nineteen eighty nine I was fortunate enough to join the firm I'm with now, Burke Simpson, it was Berg and Eldridge at the time, and got to work with some of the finest trial lawyers I know. Um, and people who, you know, needed um, some young guy to to train and to help along and who was willing to do the work. And it's been a delight ever since.
2: It sounds like mentoring and networking to some degree has been fairly impactful in your life how important is that for young lawyers to try to find someone to help guide them because you mentioned that that case that maybe you got your derriere kicked a bit so if you had a mentor during that might have turned out differently
3: there's no maybe about it Courtney I absolutely (laughs) got thrashed and yes having a mentor would have been a great thing I think mentoring um, and I didn't realize it was mentoring back in the 80s no one called it that But mentoring is critical for the young lawyer coming along, and it's critical for the more experienced lawyer who has so much wisdom to share. And I am very fortunate and very grateful that I've had a number of outstanding lawyers who are both great lawyers and wonderful people, outstanding human beings, who have been kind enough to mentor me, to take me under their wing, and show me how life is lived, how the law is lived, how, in this case, how civil cases are handled. And there's no substitute for it.
2: Well, so let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the the parts of the law that have been a little bit more difficult on you. And so you had mentioned, you'd, you'd highlighted a little bit when you were in college and hinting towards maybe some dysfunction down the road.
3: Oh, so you may be disclosing about my dysfunction. I'm happy to do that, Courtney. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that I'm very outspoken about it because um, I really want to help change the dialogue around the issue. Growing up in a very strict religious home, um, there was no alcohol. and We didn't even use the word alcohol. That was sin and evil. And and so I'm one of those people who uh, got to college and had never had a sip of alcohol and went to a school where they'd kick you out if you drank. And so... When I got married and went to law school, with all the pressure, um, we had an issue where uh, my wife was starting to have panic attacks. And a resident at the Wake Forest uh, Clinic uh, suggested that rather than buying prescription drugs, we ought to just buy some wine and she'd be fine. And for me... Uh, that was the introduction to the world of alcohol and it was in fairly short order that I became a daily drinker and then a daily heavy drinker and ultimately spent uh, 10 years drinking to blackout uh, every night. Uh, and I would get up the next morning and I'd march off to court and do my thing and I you know, I'm very thankful I never, uh, drank and drive, drove. I never went to court intoxicated. I never missed hearings. I was a high-functioning alcoholic, but I was a blathering, fall-down, blackout drunk, and that was incredibly destructive in my life and in my relationships. And I'm very fortunate. I can tell you today that, um, you know, April Fool's Day, 1991, is my sobriety birthday. And that's the day when I made a commitment and with the help of God and with the help of uh, sponsors and friends and family and those who held me accountable, uh, been able to pursue a life of sobriety. But you know, that's, a, that's a damaging thing in anyone's life. It's an abnormal relationship with alcohol and it is, it is uh, part of who I am.
2: So when you, were, when you say that you were high functioning, and so you're not missing court, but you're really using it as a, a methodology to deal with the high stress and the unpredictability of of the law. And obviously the doctor said, "Go ahead and have some wine." <laughs> doctor said it's okay. Now,
3: if I ever find that guy, I have a few things to say to him. <laughs> right. but.
2: but so you so you 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 kind of go into this this mode where, you know, you're in a profession where you don't get the opportunity to say, "Hey, I'm I'm broken. You've got to have the armor on all the time. You got to go into court and be on no matter what's happening. So you can't come in and say, I feel under the weather, my dog died, whatever's happening. You got to be on.
3: You got to be on. There's, there's two, two or three aspects to that. One is, and unfortunately, it's a curse, but I never had a hangover. Not once. Not once in all those years of consuming gallons of, of liquor. Uh, had, I, had I had more physical ill effects, I might have quit sooner. Um, and so when I talk about being high-functioning, I'm talking about being literally able to drink to blackout and get up the next morning at 3 a.m. and go to the office and work and be capable, now certainly not uh, you know, necessarily objectively brilliant, but capable of, of functioning without detection. Um, and, n- yes, in our profession, there is no room for admitting weakness There is no culture that encourages vulnerability. There is no um, dialogue, at least for many years there wasn't, around, I need help. I've got, I I need help. And that's when I talk about changing the dialogue. I'm very grateful that that we've seen a, a significant sea change in the dialogue around substance abuse, around mental health issues, and around a lawyer well-being in recent years. But in 91, when I got sober, I was scared to death. And um, you, you, that was just not something that you did, you admitted to, it, it was, it, you tough it out, you're macho, you, you keep it secret.
2: What was the reception that you got from your law partners or others around you? Because that's really one of the things that keeps people afraid from saying, hey, I'm having a hard time handling stuff. I,
3: I, Courtney, I am so fortunate, I am so grateful, I am am so wonderfully blessed by the people that I have the pleasure of working with. I joined Bergen Eldridge in, in 1989 and got sober in 91, and in 93, my therapist talking to me said, you've got to tell somebody, this secrecy is killing you, you've got to tell people, and tell them you're in recovery, and talk to me about how to talk about it. I assumed I would get fired. So I came into my office, I got all my files in order, I cleaned out everything, I had my desk ready, I could put it all in a box, and I assumed I would get terminated, I assumed I'd get reported to disciplinary counsel, I assumed that the judges in the cases I had would, you know, reprimand me, clients would fire me. And so I sat the three partners in the firm, Mike Berg, Peter Berg, and Scott Eldridge down, and I... Talk to them about it. They thought I was quitting. I found out later. But I just told them what was going on in my life and that I had, you know, 18 months of sobriety and that I was uh, working through it. And they, and they cried. They hugged me. They've been nothing but loving and supportive, held me accountable, right? Which is great, but it had really a generous and loving response, which blew me away. I had no context, no idea that would be how I would be treated. Um, the flip side of that coin, if you don't mind, is that uh, I was serving at the time in a, in a leadership role in a very um, conservative uh, Christian church and felt the need to inform leadership. And they didn't know what to do about it. And the upshot of that was that uh, we ended up needing to leave the church because people just couldn't accept that and couldn't deal with it. And I think in their defense, they didn't know how to deal with it. But I'm fortunate that I got love and and encouragement and care from the at that point the men that I worked with at, uh, at the law firm.
2: That's really a, a touching component to that, right? Because you have this one institution that is supposed to be turn the other cheek, love everyone, be supportive of that, and, and they weren't as sure what to do with that, and here you have the shark-swimming <laughs> lawyers that are welcoming you and hugging you and trying to support you through that journey.
3: Yeah, the contrast has been, a, as you can imagine, a decisive turning point in my life, and um, as I said, I'm just incredibly grateful, um, and I couldn't have imagined it.
2: I know that you're very passionate and active about trying to make sure not only that conversation has changed, but what kind of things are there available for someone who might be in the law that's facing those challenges?
3: Listen, I'm passionate about that, as you said, because I I care about the people that that share um, our profession and... Um, so, there are a number of resources that are available. One of the most important resources that are, is available is COLAP, which is the Colorado Lawyers Assistance Program. It's a strictly confidential, by Supreme Court rule, it's confidential. Um, and so they cannot uh, in any way uh, reveal your identity, that you're involved, that you've contacted them, but they provide counseling services. They provide re- provide referral services to qualified therapists who actually know how to deal with lawyers who have substance issues or mental health issues. Uh, they have tools that they will provide, and uh, it's paid for by our, our registration fees when we uh, pay every year, Part of that money to, that we give to the Supreme Court goes to fund COLAP, and it's a marvelous organization. Call them up. Uh, they will get you on the right path. The other cool thing for most lawyers is if you have some kind of health care plan at your place of employment, uh, it's likely that you have an EAP uh, provision that provides a wide array of services that many people don't know about that include counseling services, therapy services, financial counseling services, mental health services, uh, etc. And those resources are available, and it's important that lawyers uh, not be ashamed to reach out and and, and ask for help. There are a number of other really good organizations, but those are the two I'd highlight.
1: I'm also a little curious as well because – It feels like a lot of the events, for example, that are held through not just the Bar Association, but between lawyers involve alcohol or heavenly centered around alcohol. How do you navigate that? It sounds like you've been sober for 30 years now. Yes. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, How do you navigate those events and those social situations?
3: Well, so you, you, Nicole, you you touch on something that is of concern, which is we have a a societal and a uh, cultural um, reflex, which is let's relax with alcohol. Let's have happy hour. Let's have receptions with, with alcohol. And that feeds the the perception and the practice of unhealthy coping and attempts to palliate the stress and the anxiety and worry that we feel as lawyers. And so um, that's a cultural issue, and it is something that is in part an explanation for the fact that as a profession, lawyers have a much higher incidence of substance abuse, problem-drinking, much higher incidence of mental health anxiety depression those sorts of things than not only the population at large but other high stress professions like medicine or accounting or even air traffic controllers and so we're reinforcing that with our social conventions and that conversation is changing as more awareness is reaching the surface but it's a, it, it's, it's a habitual reflex. It's a cultural uh, reaction. And so um, I'd like to see greater steps to change that. And we have, we're very fortunate here in Colorado. We have uh, had leaders in this area at OARC, the regulatory body. Jim Coyle and Jonathan White were very involved at the national level with the ABA Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being. Jim was one of the primary authors of the of the report. That's been a springboard nationally for dealing with lawyer well-being. And then our Supreme Court has uh, created and operated a task force on lawyer well-being that Jonathan White and Justice Marquez have chaired. And um, that has really helped focus over about a two-year period the efforts of some of the best and brightest minds including Courtney um, who are looking at how can we in- encourage and enhance uh, lawyer well-being in the state and of course um, we'll get to your question in a second <laughs> But then springing from that is the pilot project on the recognition program for legal employers designed to provide incentives for legal employers to promote well-being within their organization, not just for lawyers, but for all employees. And that um, pilot project has concluded its work. The publication of the report has been made. And our Supreme Court has authorized a further investigation to try to figure out how to roll that out statewide. And so I'm thrilled. I'm just thrilled with where Colorado is going with this dialogue and the resources that are being applied to it. I'm also active in Wyoming, and and Wyoming is working hard on it. Wyoming's probably uh, several months behind Colorado in this process because of the great leadership we've had here. But it's encouraging. It's encouraging to see. Um, so I know I've rambled on on that answer, but I, let me re- return to your initial question, which is how do I deal with it? And fortunately for me at this point, it's very easy. I'm very, very, very fortunate that I have zero desire to drink. I have uh, such a wonderful life that is devoid of the influence of intoxicants. And I can, I can go sit at a table with people who are drinking all day long and have zero issues. I can hang out in to- cocktail hour just fine. But for for many people who are starting their recovery journey, or wishing they could recover, that's that's a minefield.
2: Well, and Dave, talking about I know that you and I did work on that task force, and you've gone even a step further, trying to get that lawyer well-being uh, pilot program into the next phase. But. What do you specifically do? Because certainly when you're in this culture that says, oh, it's a tough day, better go home and have a drink to get past it. What are the things you do to, to shift and change so you can come home and be smiley and happy for your wife and, and not bring whatever was going on at court home with you and, and really recharge?
3: Well, let's start with the premise that I fail miserably pretty much every day. But, <laughs> you know, the goal is to leave the work at the work and to use the tools. And, you know, I meditate. Uh, I am compulsive about physical exercise. I'm very fortunate to be married to a woman who's deep into recovery herself. Uh, so we have a culture of recovery in our home and we have very healthy um, eating choices and healthy activities that help diffuse the tension and the stress of the day. We're very involved in the recovery community, so one of our, and I don't know what you all know about the 12-step programs, but steps 10, 11, and 12 of the typical 12-step program are the uh, steps that help you maintain your sobriety or maintain your uh, your uh, spiritual development, if you will. And those steps are primarily focused on service work. And so that's a big aspect of any 12-step program is to provide service work. And I'm very fortunate my family is very active in service work on a number of different levels. And it does help you know, keep us healthy and, and give us a, a healthy outlet for the stress and tension and concern of the day.
2: What do you think makes you such a good lawyer?
3: It's funny you would ask that. The most important skill that I try to teach new trial lawyers, new lawyers that want to be trial lawyers, is the skill of listening. And it's funny how the reactions are all the same. Oh, I know how to listen. I went to law school. I got great grades. I ordered the coiff. No, no, no. There are so few people in our world today, our information age, who are really adroit at listening and it's a it's a critical skill because it draws one into being present and so not to get too philosophical here but I think being present in what we're doing whether it's relationships where it's easy to be worried about a lot of things and we need to be present or being present in the courtroom with the judge with the witness with the jurors that's a, that's a critical skill, and I think it makes a huge difference. And the result is that I really enjoy handling high-dollar, complex civil cases from really, really smart people who do really amazing things that I can't even begin to imagine, and I'm able to be present in that process. That's a, that's a muscle, like listening. It's a muscle.
2: One, well, with your accounting background, you probably really love being able to make these big damages and monetary <laughs> flowcharts for everyone to follow through Excel spreadsheets. Uh, no <laughs>
3: <laughs> No, it's a valuable tool, and I use the accounting piece on a regular basis, but do I love it? Not. A, n- 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 not on your life. <laughs> I do like it when the jury puts lots of zeros on the, in the verdict form, though. I like that.
2: Isn't that how it works for that you? Every time. Every time. <laughs> if you don't ask for it, you don't get it, right?
3: Very true. <laughs> very true. Although it's been interesting to see how the social media age, the information age that we live in, right? We have so much information now, you'd think people would know so much more. No, it's just changed the way we process data. And it's it's been fun to to learn how to try cases, you know, again and again and again, because it's very different you know, in the, the 2020s than it was trying cases back in the 1970s and 1980s. It's just, the people are different. Juries are different. The processing's different. It's fun. I love people. So that's kind of cool.
2: You've been at Berg Simpson for 32 years, if I did my math right. Okay. Right? Well, I'll, tr- I'll trust you on that. It, it was July the 5th,
3: 1989.
2: How do you keep your passion for this so that you're not going into autopilot and you're a really engaging guy. I can imagine you in front of a jury. It would be probably pretty entertaining. They're probably hanging on every word that you say. (laughs)
3: Well, that's a little optimistic, but thank you. (laughs) Uh, You know, the fact of the matter is I'm a lifelong learner. I get paid to learn things. And so the fascinating part of my job is that I get paid to learn about new matters, new issues, create uh, new solutions, be creative, and I get to practice with some of the truly and the greatest people and trial lawyers that I know. And that's not to the denigration of anyone else. But top to bottom, I have great trial lawyers in my firm, and they're all good people. They're people I enjoy spending time with. They're morally you know, admirable, and it's, it's a rush. I love it.
2: So that's not always something you hear, right? You sometimes hear people talk about, "Oh, I go to work and those are the people I work with." But you're you're really describing kind of a family and and friendship and and kind of this deeper level of connection. What is the secret to making that happen in a law firm?
3: Well, I don't know what the secret is to making that happen in a law firm, but I can tell you that the gentlemen and there are we have when I started out, it was we were all guys. Uh, we have a number of women that are in our practice now, but the the men who were the leaders in the firm created a family atmosphere that demanded excellence, and of course they came with their own character and moral excellence and character excellence. And we have brought in people and created affiliations that are based on relationships where we value excellence and we value people over money. And the theory was that if you are excellent at what you do and treat people right, the money will follow. And so far, I've been very fortunate to say that's absolutely true. So, for example, we're affiliated with the former Senator Alan Simpson and his family up in Cody, Wyoming, and that came through relationships. And I will tell you, they are truly wonderful human beings. Al Simpson is one of the most amazing Americans I can ever imagine. I don't really care for most politicians, but he is a true statesman. And so that character fit with the character of the men and women I was practicing with.
1: So you've had, and I'm going to call it, an illustrious career. I know you're being pretty humble today, (laughs) which we
3: appreciate. But what is next for you? There's so much left to do, so much left to learn. And again, I'm fortunate. I love what I do. Um, And I get to do it with people that I truly love and care about. And I get to, I'm fortunate enough to select my clients. There was a period of time in my life where I had to accept the clients that I could find. And I'm blessed to say at this juncture that I get to pick the clients I want. And if I have people that come in to try to hire me that I don't particularly care for or I don't think are being forthright, I don't have to represent them, and I don't. Um, I don't have to do the kinds of cases I don't want to do. So I get to do uh, fascinating cases that fascinate me. And I think there's a whole bunch more of them out there to be done. And as long as I can help people, And that sounds saccharine, but it's really true. As long as I can help people and at night put my head in my pillow and close my eyes and know that I've done a great job and I've helped people do good stuff, who wouldn't love to continue doing that?
2: What are the cases that you love to do?
3: You know, I I love learning about things. And so I represent and have over the years a number of uh, brain injured uh, patients because and spinal cord injured patients but you know the brain injury patients are really fascinating because that's an injury that's really hard to see and they're the the uh, suffering silently and society just doesn't really understand how devastating that event can be and it's fulfilling to me I get the chance to work with Craig Hospital if I don't know if you know familiar with Craig Rehabilitation Hospital but it's a it's a wonderful place of hope that we have here in Colorado, one of the top five in the world, and that provides rehabilitation services to spinal cord and brain-injured patients and their families. And I get to help those patients, and I change their lives. I just resolved a case in Wyoming where a guy was injured in the oil field, brain injury. He and his wife had been married four months. When he suffered this injury, he spent 74 days at Craig Hospital. His life has changed. He can't work, 39. He can't work. Um, he can't drive. He can't really walk safely. He needs someone to help care for him. And we, uh, the, <laughs> the week before trial, the, the, the bad guys uh, settled. But it changed their life. Uh, I've had the chance to represent uh, a number of, of folks like that. I, I've also had the opportunity. I represented uh, a number of um, individuals who invested in um, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, during right before the subprime mortgage meltdown and sued one of the largest investment banks and in the well, the largest investment bank in the world, as well as the rating agencies and f- had to fight for 10 years uh, to go from, you're never going to get a dime to really getting virtually a full recovery for those people uh, for the fraud that, that was perpetrated against them. And it, it's changed their lives. You know, I've been uh, appointed by a federal judge to represent, um, uh, you know, 65,000 residents down in Colorado Springs uh, whose water's been contaminated uh, in a class action. I wasn't even asking to be class counsel, but uh, one of the finest moments in my professional career when the judge literally picked me out of the group at council table and said, I'd like for you to do this uh, because I know you and you'll you'll represent these people honestly and ethically and well. And that, that kind of stuff... I just love it. Now I do a lot of run-of-the-mill commercial trial work as well. And again, I get to pick the people I represent.
2: Maybe they'll make a movie off of you like they did for Aaron Brockovich. <laughs> we expect some royalties.
1: Yeah, there you go.
3: Well, don't, don't, uh, don't spend them just yet.
1: <laughs> well, and also it sounds like you're pretty involved with lawyer well-being as well. So um, that, I know that you have shared with us has come a long way at least since especially since you've been a practicing attorney but we still do have quite a bit to go and it sounds like you're on the forefront of that so thank you for that
3: well absolutely and you know nicole one of the things that is that is uh, gives me a lot of positive uh, feedback is that i have the opportunity to work with colap as a peer uh, counselor or a peer resource for lawyers who have substance or mental health issues i'm not a professional i don't know any science around it but but I can share my experience strength and hope and it's always a delight when when lawyers are able to trust me and say let me just tell you what's going on in my life and can you can you help and can you help and and you see lives changed i have people who you know they, they come back and say this is unbelievable the freedom that I have and the relief that I've gotten and I think that it's incumbent upon all of us who care about the lawyers that we practice with the people that we love the people we respect the people that are part of our community to give back and I can't do what you all do your your gift to our community is prodigious uh, but I can I can do what I can do and I'm I'm thrilled that I'm able to do it
2: Your strength and hope and enthusiasm is positively contagious, and we have so enjoyed our time with you today and so thankful that you were so open and willing to continue that conversation so that we can help other people in the future.
3: Thank you, Courtney. I appreciate it. You listen, it's been my great pleasure.
2: Thank you.
0: This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest, or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Moe Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontellion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.